Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. We Americans love a Cinderella story. You young ones know the story of Cinderella, right? But there's, there's adult versions of the story of Cinderella, too. There's the underdog sports team that wins the championship. There's the politician that everybody wrote off that wins the election. There's the corporation that rises from the ashes. I think part of why we love a Cinderella story so much as Americans is that it resounds so much with the American dream, this, this idea that any of us could be the neglected stepsister that then becomes the belle of the ball and marries a prince, right? But I think as Christians, we have a perspective on the phenomenon of a Cinderella story that allows us to see that maybe it resounds with people for more than just the reason that it goes with the American dream. Here's what I mean. Our hope, according to the Bible, is that we are all living in a Cinderella story, one that has no midnight, that we are headed for a day in which we are going to become a spotless bride, according to Scripture, a majestic temple, uh, part of a glorious city that will go on forever and ever and ever for 10,000 years and then more, like we sang in the song earlier. So for the last four weeks during Advent, we were in this waiting series where we were emphasizing what it's like now to live in this in-between period when we are still waiting for that day to come, for our Cinderella moment to happen, for our transformation to take place. And we decided to tack on one week to the series today where we focus on the end hope that we're waiting for, that final city that we're all headed to. Um, and we're going to do that by looking at Isaiah 60 today. So you can turn there um, with me. Isaiah 60 is where we'll be. We spent a lot of time there, and I'll be noting a lot of things, so it's worth your time to open up to it and follow along. I'll read it in a moment, but as you're turning there, just a little bit of background on the book of Isaiah. Chapters 7 through 39 talk about this king, this king who reigns. Then verses, or chapters 40 through 55 talk about this servant, the servant who saves. And then the last chapters, 56 through 66, talk about this anointed one who comes and consummates salvation and vengeance as well. Our chapter, Isaiah 60, falls in that last section of the book, and Isaiah has just finished talking about a people stumbling around in darkness, even though it's noon. And then in the first verse of chapter 60, we'll we'll read that a ray of hope breaks in. It's a long chapter, but I'm going to read it in full, because anything that I have to say this morning uh, is nothing compared to God's Word. Amen? Let's follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 60, starting with verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see... They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Median and Ephah, all those from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. 
All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. It's a great picture of the glorious city to come. What we're going to do in our time together this morning is at the end of our time, we're going to talk about what that means for us as a people looking ahead to a new year in 2018. What does this picture mean for us and how we live? But first, I just want to point out a few features of this text, and two in particular. I want to point out the people of the city and the things that we see in the city, the people and the things. So first, the people. What we see when we look at the people of the city in Isaiah 60 is we see that this glorious city will have a force of multinational attraction. A force of multinational attraction. This attraction has everything to do with light and darkness. If you were to flip back a page to chapter 59, you'd see that the inhabitants of the city were people that were dwelling in thick darkness, even in the middle of the day. According to verse 2 of chapter 60, we see that the rest of the world outside the city is still dwelling in darkness at the time when this is written. But there's a particular light that specifically shines on this city in verse 1 of chapter 60. And did you see how Isaiah said it? Arise, shine, for your light has come. Think about that choice of wording there. Think about, maybe it would be helpful to illustrate the difference between if I said, there's a package for you, 
versus your package has come, right? There's a difference, isn't there? The second one implies that there's been some anticipation for this to happen, right? Isaiah doesn't just say there's a light in your city. He says your light has come. This is the light that they've been waiting for for years and years while they've been stumbling around in the darkness. And that's maybe a little bit hard for us to empathize with or understand as people who live in a time with electricity. But think back to a day like Isaiah's before you could just uh, turn on your uh, flashlight on your smartphone when you're looking uh, looking for something in the darkness, right? Darkness for them was more than just an inconvenience. It was actually scary. Not only does your workday have to end when the sun goes down, but you don't know what's out there at night after you put your kids to bed. You don't know if what kind of creatures are lurking in the darkness, what kind of enemies or thieves might be there. And so a people that have been waiting for years and years, stumbling around in the darkness without any light, you can see that the picture here is one in which when the light finally dawns, they burst with excitement. I wonder if anyone here this morning is ending 2017 on that sort of note of anticipation for the light. I wonder if anyone feels like 2017 for you was a year of stumbling around in the darkness in some ways, and you're praying as 2018 comes tomorrow that the Lord's light would shine in your life. Let's take a step back, though, and make sure we answer who are the inhabitants of this city. We haven't quite nailed it down yet. Who are the people living in this newly lit city? And then who are those other people who are coming in to the city from the darkness outside? Um, There's diversity here in the passage in terms of the people groups, right? Many nations are represented. And I have to admit that as a white American Gentile, I have a tendency to, um, when I read a passage like this one, pat myself on the back for being someone who's pro-diversity. And here's how it kind of the thought process goes in my mind. I'm like, oh, there's diverse nations coming into the city. You know what? I'm a pretty good person because I'm pro-diversity. I'm all for that. We should let any types of people groups come in and worship with us in our church. We should um, be a type of people who reflect that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, of course those people are going to be with God in heaven, and I'm so gracious, I let those people in to worship with me. Of course, that's just missing the point, isn't it? It's totally missing the point of what's going on here, because the original inhabitants of this city um, are the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are the you that Isaiah is talking to in Isaiah chapter 60 when he says you over and over and over again, the second person. In verse 14, he's talking about Zion, which is Jerusalem. In in other words, the original inhabitants of the city are faithful, believing Jewish people. And people like me, whose Irish ancestors were worshiping trees and rocks and whatever else back in the day when these people's ancestors were worshiping the one true God, People like me are the outsiders who are being invited in from the darkness outside and coming late to the party and rejoicing that we get to be part of God's chosen people as well. In that sense, Isaiah 60 is really an elaboration on a promise made by God to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Here's what God said to Abraham in verse 3 of chapter 12 in Genesis. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Did you see that theme coming up throughout Isaiah 60? Some nations are bringing gifts to this renewed Jerusalem. And those nations are blessed. Other nations, well, verse 12 says it. The nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. 
Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. But in the end, on the final analysis, it's not just people who are ethnically from the 12 tribes of Israel who get to be part of this city, is it? All sorts of nations get to be inhabitants of this city in the end. I'm looking at verse 3 where it says all nations. I'm looking at verse 4 when it says your sons shall come from afar. I'm looking at verse 10 where it says foreigners will build your walls. This becomes a multinational city. If you've read the first 59 chapters of Isaiah before you get to chapter 60, that's actually no surprise to you. Because Isaiah has been consistent all along in this vision of a final day in which God's people will include both Jew and Gentile. That just means non-Jewish person in this final redeemed people group. He says some astounding things in Isaiah, maybe most notably in chapter 19. He says this, after a whole Bible up to this point that's been talking about the Jewish people as God's chosen people, uniquely selected by God, elected by God to bring his salvation to the world, here's what Isaiah says for God. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, and this is an astounding blessing, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In other words, all throughout Isaiah, Isaiah has this picture of this day that's coming where salvation won't be limited to ethnicity, when God's people will include both Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we're getting clarity on the who of the city. Who is there? But maybe some of you are wondering when this happens. When will this take place? What time period does Isaiah have in mind? Does he have in mind the return from exile when the Jewish people were gathered from all the places where they had been scattered and come back to their homeland? Or maybe does he have in mind this period of time where we're living in today, the time between Pentecost and Christ's return? Or maybe is it not till heaven? What, What is he talking about? It's an important question, so let's evaluate the possibilities. Is it the return from exile that Isaiah has in mind? His readers probably hoped that it was. They had been banished from their homeland, scattered among the nations. And as they returned from the exile, I'm sure that they hoped that this chapter would be true of this renewed Israel. But we know, biblically and historically, that the return from exile never actually lived up to this grand picture we see in Isaiah 60. The riches of Israel never live up to what we see here in this chapter. Uh, the subservience of the nations to Israel that we see in this chapter never really was true of Israel after the exile. So the return from exile was great, but it was never this great. Option two, maybe it's this time period we're living in now. Maybe it was inaugurated by Pentecost. Think about Pentecost. The nations come to Jerusalem, don't they? And um, a new church is established, and it ends up growing and including both Jew and Gentile. Maybe that's what Isaiah had in mind. The problem with that is verses 19 and 20. Look at there again. Verses 19 and 20 of Isaiah 60. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Friends, that won't come true until the final Jerusalem our final resting place, that final glorious city where we spend eternity, 10,000 years after 10,000 years. 
That's when, as John says in Revelation, when he sees a vision of the same city, he says it the same way. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's the great hope that we're waiting for. That's what Isaiah is talking about when Jesus returns and brings us to our final home. I don't know about you, but to me that's a little bit encouraging, actually, because sometimes I feel a little discouraged as I find myself feeling a little bit like the overlooked stepsister in the Cinderella story here on this earth, right, as a Christian. The nations don't exactly feel like they're flocking to God's people at the moment. I don't know if any of you feel differently, right? Sometimes I feel overlooked. More often than that, I feel like we're the despised and rejected scum of the earth sometimes. So there's some hope for me in this idea that this is coming one day. And that even though Jesus has come, and when he came on that first Christmas, his light broke into the world in a very real way. That light hasn't yet dawned in the way that it will in Isaiah 60 when that comes true in the new Jerusalem where we'll live forever and ever. Right now, we still have to live for a little while in the first half of verse 15. We've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through. There's still some time coming before we get to experience the second half of verse 15. I'll make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. We still have to live as stepsisters for a little while. But we believe we're part of a Cinderella story. They'll have no midnight. Actually, there'll be no darkness at all, for the Lord's light will shine forever and ever. That's something that hasn't been named yet, but is critical for us to point out, too, that this light that attracts all the nations to come in from the darkness, it isn't actually the light of ourselves. It's not our light that's shining and attracting other nations in, is it? Sure, we're going to be made beautiful, according to verse 9. But that's not exactly what will attract the nations. The light in the city that attracts all nations in is actually the light of Jesus himself. Where am I getting that? I'm getting that from putting Isaiah and Revelation side by side. Isaiah's picture of the new city and John's picture of the new city side by side. It's a fascinating exercise if you have time to do it sometime. And just see there's so much overlap in the imagery that they see when they each catch their glimpse of New Jerusalem. But John, who has walked with Jesus on earth, sees it with with just a little bit more clarity. When Isaiah looks to the center of the city, to the source of that glorious light, he's kind of at a loss for words. He says it's glorious, it's stunning, it's dazzling. He's kind of um, fumbling around trying to pinpoint exactly what that light is at the center of the city. All he can say is it's the glory of God. But when John looks at that same light, I don't know if you noticed it when I read it a moment ago. Here's what he said. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. John's able to see what Isaiah couldn't in his point in redemptive history, that Jesus himself is the light at the center of the city that gives light to all nations and brings them all in, attracts them. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you believe that Jesus has that force of attraction. I wonder, I know most of you have joined Team Jesus, right? But I wonder if you really deep down believe that the ultimate desires of every one of your friends and family members, of everyone in the world, really are ultimately the desire for Jesus in the end. I wonder if you really believe that we don't have to add anything to the testimony about Jesus to make him more relevant. 
I wonder if you really believe that we don't have to subtract anything from the testimony about Jesus to make him less offensive. I wonder if you really believe that all the people who chase after glory in so many different ways, the alcoholic, the one who cheats on a spouse, the one who cheats on taxes, they're all really seeking something that could only ultimately be found in the fulfillment that's available through Jesus. Do you really believe that? People from all nations are coming to believe that, even this morning as we speak. People from all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations are coming to realize and find Jesus, our Messiah, to be the light that they have always been yearning for without even realizing it. And they are finding their place in this growing multinational city spoken of in Isaiah 60. What about you? Have you come to that Jesus yet? Well, that was the people. We looked at the people of the city. The glorious city will have a force of multinational attraction, and we saw that that force will be Jesus himself. But finally, we just want to look at the things of the city for a few moments. The things of the city, and we'll see here in Isaiah 60 that the glorious city will make use of redeemed products of culture. The glorious city will make use of redeemed products of culture. Did you notice that in this text? That it's not just humans that are coming into the city? There's animals coming in. There's cultural products, we might call them, being brought into the city. Verse 5 said the wealth of the nations is being brought in. Verse 6 said that camels are coming in from Median and Ephah and Sheba. Gold and frankincense were pictured being brought into the city in verse 7. The ships of Tarshish in verse 9. The timber of Lebanon in verse 13. On and on and on. Cultural products are being brought in to this final glorious city, this renewed Jerusalem. So, if you were wondering during the first half of the sermon why God would desire for his final glorious city to include human diversity, at least one answer to that question might be this, that he desires for the products of the nations to be brought into Jerusalem with the people in the end. Over the course of human history, different cultures, people groups have developed specializations and skills uh, in different areas that are unlike anywhere else in the world. Isaiah lists several of those that he knew about in his day here in Isaiah 60. If he was writing today, he might talk about the chocolate of Switzerland being brought in to the heavenly kingdom. He might talk about the diamonds of Botswana being brought in. He might even talk about the hockey of Canada being brought in. But if you've been reading Isaiah up to this point, you would actually be shocked by this chapter, by this depiction of the products of the nations being brought in to God's glorious final new Jerusalem. You'd be shocked by it because these cultural products had been used for anything but God's glory up to this point. Let's just take the ships of Tarshish for as an example. They're mentioned in verse 9. You see that there. What they're doing in verse 9, the ships of Tarshish, is that they're bringing silver and gold for the name of the Lord their God. The thing about the ships of Tarshish is that they were doing anything but being used for the glory of God up to this point. They were renowned around the world for being these huge vessels. The people of Israel probably would have been in awe of them. They were used for military exploitation. They were used for economic exploitation of other nations. Anything but the glory of God is what they were used for. In fact, God condemns the ships of Tarshish earlier in the same book of Isaiah. Look what he says in chapter 2. It says, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it should be brought low. And he starts listing things. First thing he lists, against all the cedars of Lebanon. Those come up in chapter 60. 
lofty and lifted up. And then it goes on to list a few others. And he says, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness, that's the pride of man, shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So this is astounding that in this same book, chapter 2 says the Lord has a day against the ships of Tarshish and will bring them low. Chapter 60 says the ships of Tarshish will be bringing silver and gold into God's heavenly kingdom to bring glory to his name. How can these both be true? It's a sophisticated, nuanced situation that has something to say for us as we view products of culture. So I want to just take a moment for an excursus on culture for a second. Um, here's what I mean. Sometimes as Christians, we just have an attitude toward culture as it's something to be accepted or rejected. Uh, I don't know where we got that idea. Maybe Fox News likes to talk about this this way or whatever your favorite cable news station is, talks about it this way, that the culture out there is bad and we must reject it. It's, it's going to hell in a handbasket, right? But that's not how the Bible talks about culture, always, right? It's a lot more sophisticated and nuanced than that. When the Bible's talking about individual products of human culture and technology, um, there's a complex relationship that us believers are supposed to have towards them. So here's how some Christians have found it helpful to evaluate cultural products. A three-part system. Some things we receive, some things we reject, and some things we redeem. Receive, reject, redeem. Here's what that means. Some things we receive. That means we can just use them for God's glory just as they are. A piano might be an example. It's a human cultural product. We receive it as Christians and just gladly use it for God's glory and give thanks to him for it. Other things, products of culture, we have to reject. So pornography is an example. There's nothing redeemable about it. So as Christians, we must reject that. But with the overwhelming majority of cultural products, there's some redeeming that has to take place. In other words, we take it and use it for something different than what the rest of the world uses it for. The rest of the world's not using it for God's glory. We do use it for God's glory. So as we evaluate an individual cultural product like the rugby of Australia or um, the ships of Tarshish, the receive, reject, redeem model comes in handy, and the most things we need to redeem, and that's exactly what happens with the ships of Tarshish in Isaiah. In chapter 2, they were being used for the glory of man, to lift people up, to make people feel proud about themselves, to exploit and dominate others. By chapter 60, the same ships aren't destroyed by God. They are repurposed by God for a new purpose. They're used suddenly now to bring glory to God by bringing silver and gold into his heavenly kingdom. It's a fun exercise for me to imagine how all sorts of cultural artifacts in our own day and age might be repurposed in the age to come. Um, I can imagine Ben Nilsson's brain just spinning about what all the uh, Apple products might be repurposed and used for in the heavenly kingdom. Um, But the bottom line is that we are not headed back to this pristine Garden of Eden where we started. That's not the end trajectory of human history for us. The Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a city, and that city will be cultivated by human labor and filled with the products of human technology. We can imagine human monuments that are built toward people here in this day and age being somehow repurposed into testimonies to God's greatness throughout human history. 
We can picture bombs and missiles being hollowed out and used as play areas for children in the age to come. The possibilities are endless. Um, But even the things that we least expect in our culture, even those cultural products that we least expect to be there in the heavenly kingdom, some of those are there. I'm thinking about one in particular that came up throughout this passage, and it's politics. Do you see how many times the word kings came up in this passage? Some of you were like, no, don't tell me there's politics in the age to come. I wake up every morning and look at the news and pray, Lord, come quickly so I can get away from this world where there's politics, right? But this passage talking about the final Jerusalem keeps talking about kings. It seems like they're still under rulers, under King Jesus in the age to come. You know, there won't be a two-party system. There won't be voting taking place anymore. There will be an absolute monarchy and it will be the greatest government that's ever been under King Jesus. Amen. But it seems like there's going to be human authority that still is taking place. And that's not a surprise to us who have read the New Testament. Jesus told parables about one who was, put, uh, who was faithful over a few things being put in charge of many cities. Jesus in Revelation 2 says to one of the churches that the one who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. It seems like there's still some place in the age to come for human authority to take place. And we bristle at that a little bit. We don't like that idea because human authority to us, we've never seen it done perfectly. We've never seen it done selflessly. We've never seen it done in a way that didn't make us feel icky, right? But this is something different here in Isaiah 60. The human authority in the age to come. Did you notice what the kings are doing in Isaiah 60? I think the junior high students probably noticed it and giggled a little bit. When they read verse 16, I think giggling actually is the appropriate response here. I think that's a little bit of what Isaiah is going for. Here's what it says. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. That's outlandish, right? Because kings don't have milk. Um, But every bit as outlandish as that piece of it is that what experience have we ever had with people in authority using their authority like a nursing mother to just purely to bless those under their leadership. That's an astounding, shocking idea that's so different than how politics has been in our day and age. But politics, even, will be so thoroughly redeemed in the age to come that verse 17 will be true. It says, I will make your overseers, that's literally governors, peace. I will make your taskmasters, righteousness. In other words, governor will be a synonym for peace. The word taskmaster will be interchangeable with the word righteousness. You just can interchange whichever one you want. That's how thoroughly peace and righteousness are going to pervade the leadership structures in the age to come. Man, I wish we had some more time to paint the edges of this canvas that Isaiah has laid out for us. We've really only had time this morning to look at the broad strokes of what he's done here in sharing with us about the glorious city that is to come. But I want to just make sure right now that we ask the question, What do we do with this now? Today, last day of 2017, what do we do with this picture of the glorious city that is to come? As we're looking ahead into 2018 and making plans for how my life's going to be different next year, how should Isaiah 60 factor into that? Christians have different perspectives on that. Uh, The two major perspectives are this. Some people say when we're given this glorious picture of heaven, here's what we do with it. If that's how heaven is, let's bring heaven here now. Let's make this earth what heaven will be. That's perspective one. Perspective two is, 
This earth will never be like this picture of heaven in Isaiah 60. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. Best we can do is shelter our kids from the evil that's out there trying to corrupt them. Build a bomb shelter in Tennessee somewhere in the hills and stock it with canned goods and just ride out the storm until Jesus returns and brings us home. Which one's right? I want to suggest that they're both a bit misguided. Here's why. The first one's misguided because the Bible actually never tells us to transform this world to make it just like heaven. Do you realize that? It never actually tells us that. At least on a broad scale. Um, We're never called to do that. Now somebody says, well, the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. There it says it. And we should rejoice when there's a little glimpse on earth that looks like heaven, shouldn't we? But... Remember, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer. (laughs) We're asking God to do that. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When the Bible talks about heaven, the new Jerusalem, it doesn't talk about it as something we create. It says that we're waiting for a city whose architect and builder is God. It says the new Jerusalem in the end will come down out of heaven to us. Um, It's not something that we can just politically or educationally or in whatever way achieve here on the earth, here and now. But I think the other side is just as misguided because the Bible also has no concept for a believer who's anticipating the heavenly city to come who just sits on their hands as they're waiting. In other words, the Bible has no concept for passive waiting for the glorious city to come. It's always about active waiting. Always. Jesus actually told a parable about the one who waits passively, buried a talent, some money in the ground until the master returned. What happened to that servant? He's thrown into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because the master had given what he had given in expectation that there'd be interest returned on his investment when he came back. The Bible has no concept for sitting and waiting and riding out the storm for the glorious city to come and ignoring the real things going on here on the earth either. So what are we supposed to do? Some of you have been accused maybe by friends, family members, co-workers, of having a pie-in-the-sky belief system, right? Or maybe they use the words, your faith is just an opiate for the masses. You've heard that, right? An opiate for the masses. In other words, it numbs you from the real things going on here on earth because you just block it out because you're thinking about heaven. And that's exactly what the powers that be want you to believe because it helps keep them in power and you don't speak out against the things that are going wrong here on earth. How do we respond to that as Christians? who do have a hope of a future glorious city. I think one part of it is that we have to acknowledge that to some extent our religion, our faith, is a pie-in-the-sky type of faith to an extent. Here's what I mean. The Bible's pictures of the heavenly city to come do give us an incredible amount of ability to endure suffering and pain and rejection here on this earth as we wait for the kingdom to come. It gives us hope that enables us to press on. In that sense, it is a pie-in-the-sky faith, but if there is actually a pie-in-the-sky, then it's not unreasonable to have a pie-in-the-sky faith. Amen? On the flip side, we can't ignore the Bible's testimony that of what everybody throughout the Bible did with their belief in the glorious city to come. Here's what I mean. The characters of the Bible didn't 
think, oh, there's a glorious city to come. Now I'm going to sit on my hands. Time after time after time, what that motivated them to do, the picture of the life to come, what it motivated them to do was to not count their life as precious here, which gave them the courage to speak out against injustice during this day and age. It gave them the courage to love their neighbors even when it hurt themselves here on this earth, right? It didn't make them ignore the real problems going on on earth. It made them lean into those even more and do so in the freedom of knowing this world is not my home like we sung earlier today. So the bottom line today is just this. The big idea is seek the city that is to come. And that's an active waiting, not a passive waiting. Seek the city that is to come. How do we do that? I hope you've heard a few ways today in this sermon, just reviewing. One way to seek the city to come is that we endure hardship, knowing that something greater is coming. Another way to seek the city to come is to embrace diversity in God's family, knowing that most of us are outsiders who have been let in. And a third way to seek the city, there are many that came up in this passage, but a third one is to receive, when it comes to the products of culture, receive what can be received, reject what must be rejected, and redeem everything else to be repurposed and used for God's glory. In doing these three things and the others that we talked about in the sermon today, we become an embassy as Christians, as a church. We become an embassy of that city that is to come. We're ambassadors to it. We don't have any sort of hope that the whole world here is going to become like the heaven to come. We know that's not going to happen. The Bible tells us, assures us it's not going to happen. But we can be an outpost of it here. We can give our friends and neighbors a glimpse of it here and how we live and how we interact with one another. I want to make sure, though, before we wrap up today that, you know, some of you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus. And I want to make sure you heard what this passage was saying about what happens if we reject this invitation to this glorious city. It's not really just that we'll miss out on something great, although that is true. It's more than that. The words of verse 12 of our text were chilling, really. The nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. In other words, friends, the final city where we're headed, while it will embrace all without distinction, it will not embrace all without exception. I'll say that one more time. That final glorious city will embrace all without distinction. All nations, tribes, tongues, peoples, nations will be there. It will not embrace all without exception. Some people will end up outside of that city in the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Jesus, the one who is the light at the center of that city, he actually came to be a human being. That's what we celebrated on Christmas. And he came and lived a perfect life. And then he died in your place and in my place to take the punishment we deserve so that we could be in this glorious heavenly city with God forever and ever instead of out in the darkness where there's eternal punishment. But we all have to accept that invitation for ourselves. Consider it this morning. If you're sitting here this morning, consider it that you have received the invitation in the mail. The invitation has come to this final Cinderella city that will have no midnight, that will go on forever and ever and ever. And the way you accept it is just to say yes to God. Say, yes, Lord, I want to be part of that glorious city. I believe that the shed blood of Jesus was shed to wash away my sins. I turn away now from my sins, and I want to be in that glorious city with you forever. Bring me there with you, Lord. Just say that to him. If you haven't yet accepted 
that invitation to this final glorious city, say after with one of us, we'd love to talk to you more about it. Let me pray. Or as we look ahead to a new year, this vision of the glorious city to come gives us hope. Some of us are struggling and feeling like we're limping to the finish line of 2017. Others of us feel like we've reached our wit's end. Lord, let this vision that we've seen of the new Jerusalem, the glorious city to come, let it give us strength into 2018. Captivate us with this picture of who you are as the light at the center of that city. And help it to make us a people who actively wait, not passively wait, as we yearn for your return, as we yearn to be brought into that city where we live with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with uh, one final song. Stand, stand with us. Uh, it's a newer text. It's a newer lyric than we're used to, but it's a traditional melody. It's, it's based on the melody of Auld Lang Syne. So sing these words with us. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain the builders strive. To Let living water
Amen. You can stay standing. There are no text questions uh, today. Uh, let me leave you with just this word. The benediction will just come straight from our scripture text today. Verse 15 of Isaiah 60. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Go into a new year, 2018, knowing that it's only a matter of time till that promise comes true and our Lord makes us majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Blessings to you. Amen.